Welcome to the Terry and Jesse Show. One man car. My name is Jess Romero. Terry's out doing apostolic work. The man never uh, tires to work for the Lord Jesus Christ and Our Lady. Whole lot to talk about today. The month of March is dedicated to St. Joseph. I, I, I like to say St. Joseph, terror of demons, pray for us. And at the end of my morning prayers, my evening prayers, prayers throughout the day. So yeah, it's the month of St. Joseph, the month of March. The entire month month falls during the liturgical season of Lent, which is represented by the liturgical color purple. That's a symbol of penance, mortification, and the sorrow of a contrite heart. <clears throat> also, if though, for those of you that like what you hear, you can support the show by sharing the full show page link at vmpr.org. You can also find us on social media at VMP Radio, at VMP Radio, and on our YouTube channel called Full Sheen Ahead. Share us with your friends and evangelize everybody that you love. Couple things we're going to be talking about today. We'll be talking about the regimenting the body and destroying the soul, the ugly legacy of brutalism. We'll also be talking about our technology. It's not how we use them that's the problem, it may be even deeper than that. And finally, the last segment, you're going to really enjoy it. Uh, Steve, Steve Harvey, he's a, a black American comedian and entertainer. It's, it's a three-minute, 18-second clip. You're going to enjoy it. It's called, If I Had the Pleasure to Introduce Jesus Christ, This Is How I Would Do It. Boy, oh boy, I wish all comedians would go back to that type of comedy, which is good and clean and actually promoting gospel truths. You'll hear his three-minute clip, uh, Steve, Steve Harvey, If I Had the, the Pleasure to Introduce Jesus Christ, This Is How I Would Do It. I'm like, Wow. I wish uh, all comedians were that clean and promoting promoting such a good message. But uh, let's let's go on to some of the things that uh, are affecting us as Catholic Christians. <clears throat> some of the things that we're dealing with in the culture. Reproductive justice at Notre Dame. First news item. In the wake of the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe versus Wade, several education departments at the University of Notre Dame are hosting an event series dedicated to reproductive justice. The series has attracted criticism for its decidedly pro-abortion slant. An abortion doula with a tattoo of abortion equipment is one of the speakers at its next event. This is the full takeover of Catholic universities. Also, Donald Trump dominates CPAC straw poll. Former President Donald Trump on Saturday vowed that he would obliterate the deep state if elected president. He won 60% in the straw poll at the Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC, in Washington, D.C., where he was the keynote speaker. Governor Ron DeSantis received 20%, and Trump, Trump pledged in 2016, I declared, I am your voice. Today, I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. Also. Marion Williamson on Saturday announced she's running for president as a Democrat. Uh, Marion Williamson has been an, an outspoken critic of the Democrat Party. She said, I see this campaign as a challenging, challenging a system. She said, I have no interest in taking pot shots on any person, let alone to this president. He's a nice man. Marion Williamson is also part of the New Age movement. She is a evolving new age occult practices so that's very interesting she's running again for the democrat party subcommittee 
Fauci worked against lab leak theory. The GOP leadership in the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic revealed over the weekend that they had uncovered email evidence suggesting Dr. Anthony Fauci promoted the drafting of an influential paper meant to disprove the COVID-19 lab leak theory. The theory that the virus um, most likely originated in and was leaked from a lab is now the official position of health agencies. But for several years, officials dismissed it and big tech companies censored it. So now we have the government admitting uh, the COVID-19 lab leak theory. Interesting. Attorney General Merrick Garland made an unannounced visit to Ukraine where he pledged the U.S. would assist Ukrainian officials in pursuing war criminals. Officials said Garland held several meetings and, and reaffirmed our determination to hold Russia accountable for crimes committed in its unjust and unprovoked invasion against its sovereign neighbor. Also, Soros-backed prosecutors cornered Missouri's Republican Attorney General Andrew Bailey has issued a subpoena for St. Louis Mayor Tashara Jones, the latest move in a bipartisan effort to remove Soros-backed Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner from office. Bailey's asking Jones to provide any documentation with Gardner from 2017 to 2023, including messages from personal devices. Also, legal scholars warned that the Biden administration's proposed changes could result in firings of Catholic health care workers and jeopardize funding for Catholic hospitals. Also, bishops defend the Latin Mass communities. In the wake of the new restrictions on the traditional Latin Mass, Bishop Thomas Paprocki of the Diocese of Springfield, Illinois, and Archbishop Joseph Neiman of the, Arch, of the Archdiocese of Kansas City, Kansas, both defended the TLM communities within their diocese during interviews with EWTN's Raymond Arroyo last week. Good on them. Also, English translation of Blessed Carlos Acuti's Life, a book on the life of Blessed Carlos Acuti, written by his own mother, has been translated and released in English. In the work, my son Carlo Acuti, through the eyes of his mother, Antonia Salsona Acuti, shares intimate moments of her son's life, including his final days, in vivid detail. Also, the art of silence. All of man's fortunes comes from one thing, which is not knowing how to sit quietly in a room. Pascal's words should make us all a little uncomfortable. We live in a world full of alerts and notifications. Even our most quiet moments in our homes are often interrupted by the sound of machinery or cars. Our Jared Stout invites us to a, to a healing practice of silence this Lent through which we can rediscover true rest and heaven on earth. And finally, Catholicism 101, St. Thomas Aquinas had this to say about the relationship of a husband and a wife. Quote, now there seems to be the greatest friendship between husband and wife, close quote. Marriage is a beautiful form of friendship supported not only by our faith, but by our natural desires. Brother Gregory Santi, Dominican, explains how grace builds on nature to form a unique bond between man and woman in holy matrimony. And uh, Harrison Bucker uh, is approaching Lent like a champion. There's a meme that says, Harrison Buckner says, some devils are only cast out by prayer and fasting. That's Harrison Buckner. Good on him or good for him. All right. Hey, let me share with you uh, today's gospel reading. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke chapter 6, verse 36 to 38. It's very short. 
Jesus said to his disciples, be merciful just as your father, your heavenly father is merciful. Stop judging and you will not be judged. Stop condemning and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will forgive. Give and the gifts will be given to you. A good measure packed together, shaken down and overflowing will be poured into your lap for the measure with which you measure will in turn be measured out to you. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. That's Luke chapter 6, verses 36 to 38. There's two verses that jump out at me where our Lord says, first of all, be merciful. Mercy is the towering rule of Christ's kingdom. It's uh, If you look at, uh, for example, Luke chapter 10, verse 36 to 37, Matthew 9, 13. Mercy is the overarching theme that's preached by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You also find that in the Catechism, paragraph 1458. Jesus, what he did, he reformulated the teaching of mercy that comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. And he, he replaces the command to imitate Yahweh's holiness with a command to imitate his mercy. And so the subtle difference between these divine attributes points to the difference between the Old Covenant and the New the quest for holiness in ancient Israel meant that God's people had to separate themselves from everything ungodly, unclean, and impure, including Gentiles and sinners. Our Lord Jesus Christ gives holiness a new focus, defining it as mercy that reaches out to others and no longer divides people into segregated camps or disqualifies some and not to others to enter the family of God. Also, in, uh, in verse 38, where, where our Lord, here's the phrase that he used. He says, uh, given it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, run, running over, will be put into your lap. Into your lap. What are, what's our Lord talking about there? By folding one's cloak over the belt, a pouch could be formed to carry grain from the marketplace. When grain was shaken and running over, the buyer was guaranteed a full and honest amount. So the illustration that our Lord makes, it shows how God's generosity overflows on our behalf. So remember, mercy is probably the overarching theme in scripture, especially the, the whole divine mercy. I think mercy is mentioned over 300 times in the Bible. Did you get that? Mercy is mentioned over 300 times in the Bible. And the word divine, that's one of the attributes of God. So the divine mercy is thoroughly biblical because God is divine and mercy comes from God. You put those two words together like St. Faustina did, and that describes the biblical attributes of the God of the Old and New Testament, who is the one and the same God. Hey, we'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking about the body and this regimenting the body and destroying the soul. We'll be right back. Terry and Jesse show regimenting the body and destroying the soul. Have you noticed that the increasingly 
totalitarian woke society needs an architectural style that expresses its repressive ugliness and classic struggle philosophy. Brutalism might well be the choice. If you notice, modernists like to manipulate words, spinning them into meanings that appear simple, but are relatively obscure. I call that verbal engineering, what modernists do. For example, consider the, mo- the modern misuse of the terms like accompaniment or social justice or even woke. Well, such is not the case with the architectural style known as brutalism. So what is brutalism in architecture? It's the architecture of despair. Webster's Dictionary defines brutal using words like cold, harsh, severe, unpleasant, lacking sensitivity. If you go a bit further down the page of the dictionary, it refers to brutalism. What is brutalism? It's a style in art and especially architecture using exaggeration and distortion to create its effect as of massiveness or power. Close quote. While many might not be familiar with the word, few have escaped brutalist structures in our modern world. A moment's reflection will probably end the mystery. Anyone who imagines a cold, harsh, severe, and unpleasant building like the Los Angeles, um, the Los Angeles Cathedral built by Cardinal Mahoney, <laughs> that, would, that would be called a brutalist structure. It's an unpleasant looking building, cold, harsh, severe, unpleasant looking. This would de- be defined as a brutalist structure, that monstrosity that Cardinal Mahoney left in downtown Los Angeles for the Los Angeles, Los Angeles, Los Angelinos until the second coming of Christ. So when speaking of a, of a building style, architects often discuss typical elements Individual elements may be missing, but most will appear in a particular style. So all of the following that I'm going to describe are elements of brutalism in architecture. And it'll remind you of a lot of the modernist church buildings. They're massive. Think about the LA, LA Cathedral. This is brutalism in architecture. Number one, it's massive. Number two, primarily constructed of a raw, unpainted, reinforced concrete. Number three, Rough, unfinished walls, four. Exposed structural mechanics, most often beams, ductworks, and pipes, five. Irregular shapes, six. Lack of ornamentation, seven. Limited, if any, use of color, eight. Radically utilitarian, and nine. Modular features that have been constructed elsewhere and brought to the site. I just described to you the ugliest church in the world, the Los Angeles Cathedral in downtown Los Angeles. Ironically, the term brutalism does not refer to the assault in the senses that many such buildings represent. It comes from the French phrase for raw concrete. Well, 
that would that would describe the LA Cathedral raw concrete the unfortunately examples of brutalism abound now just in Los Angeles's arch cathedral between 1960 and 1980 many public officials and businesses passionately embraced the style of brutalism in architecture its massiveness and expression of utility imply the institution's overwhelming power which enveloped the individuals with a sense of being closed in, insignificant and uncomfortable. One inspiration for this article was a glowing book review of the autobiography, quote, If Walls Could Speak, If Walls Could Speak by Moshi Savdi, a leading brutalist architect, interestingly enough. Mr. Sabdi started his architectural practice in 1964 after graduating from Canada's McGill's University. The architectural world took notice of him in 1967 with his 12-story Habitat 67 was an exhibit at that year's Montreal's World Fair. Like I've said in the past, the 60s was a brutal year in the world. So much lies, deception, Ugliness and untruth came in the 60s, and we're still fighting against it right now. So Habitat 67 consists of identical prefabricated concrete modules connected in no apparent pattern. It's a revolution against every previous rule of architecture. Safdi, he he took... Well, this is, by the way, it's a horrific view of the future when you look at this type of architecture. It's a horrific version of the future. Mr. Safdie took 354 prefab concrete modules and drew them together. It defied the notion that a building was an object with a distinct shape. Here there was no formal shape whatsoever, only agglomeration. Habitat 67 effectively abolished a traditional street and perhaps, if taken to its logical conclusion, abolished the city itself. It anticipated a future in which human habitation itself might be transformed where one could no longer think in terms of buildings and rooms, but cells and capsules, people living on top of each other. These are the signs of the times. Yeah, the Montreal World's Fair opened at the same time. San Francisco's so-called summer of love splashed into the headlines and the imaginations of legions of baby boomers in their late teens and 20s. The following year was a time of the Sorbonne Revolution in Paris and riots in many American cities fueled by the anti-Vietnam War movement. It was the age of LSD and other psychedelic drugs. Other architects and city planners took up, stood up and took notice of the change in mood as the welfare state sought to address the problems of the crumbling central cities. They looked to the new brutalist style in architecture while the Habitat 67 was too space inefficient to be a model for the agents of Lyndon Johnson's dream of urban renewal, the lesson of its constructions were useful. A construction project that relies on reinforced concrete is fast and cheap. Builders can throw prefabricated sections together quickly, covering up ductwork and plumbing with plaster and moldings was costly, but the new style made it unnecessary. The irregularity of brutalism freed architects 
and builders from the constraints of any single style. At last, utility could prevail over style. Form could follow function as avant-garde architects had desired since the 19th century. So, in the final evaluation, what were high-rise apartment buildings, especially those built to house the poor? It's a life in a capsule. It's a series of cells and capsules. The bureaucracy decreed the removal of blocks of of crumbling Victorian tenements and their replacement with scientifically designed public housing projects for millions of the poverty-stricken. So brutalism also became the style of choice for socialists and communist tyrants. Their ideology rejected bourgeois concepts like beauty or property. And so the socialist communist tyrants discarded anything individual in the name of the common good. Yes, the common good. The necessity to house millions of interchangeable sources of labor meant the construction of ever more cells and capsules, each new building less human and more egalitarian than the one it replaced. Brutalism in architecture also became the style of choice for socialists and communist tyrants. Their ideology rejected the bourgeois concepts like beauty and property. However, people want to live in homes, not concrete capsules, That home should be warm and inviting, not forbidding and cold. It should be a haven from the inhumanity of the outside world. Not a soulless space to mold soulless people. So many rejected the urban plan nightmare of the projects. That's been rejected. They want to go back to it. The left. Unfortunately, the rejection took a few years to come together. In the meantime, millions of brutalist city halls, police stations, banks, College classroom buildings and office structures scarred the nation. These new buildings rejected humanity, so humans rejected the buildings. So, what does all this mean? How does it affect us? Well, now we have ecclesiastical brutalism. uh, In other words, ugly church buildings. That's what we have now. Look at the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, Exhibit A. Perhaps the most startling aspect of architectural brutalism was how the post-conciliar Catholic Church embraced the style. A lot of Catholic churches, they echo the urban planners. The poured concrete worship spaces replace hundreds of Victorian Gothic church buildings. And in parishes that could not afford new buildings, the high altar statues and painted surfaces gave way to ugly plain, smooth, and flat elements and beige-painted banal walls. The burlap and felt banners that hung from too many walls were the only pitiful attempts to humanize such places in the church. And all of this was done, why? Because the liturgical experts said the new spaces lent dignity to the congregation. That the the Gothic style, in contrast, made worships, worshipers feel insignificant. To inspire awe was to make the worship experience impersonal according to those on the Catholic left. Of course, no one asked the people for whom the experts claimed to advocate. Congregations cried as the wrecking balls and hammers destroyed the beauty their grandparents and great-grandparents had sacrificed to create. Which reminds me, I've heard a joke before, and it's pretty accurate. 
What's the difference between a liturgist and a terrorist? Hmm. The difference between a liturgist and a terrorist. You can negotiate with a terrorist. You can't with a liturgist. Perhaps the most brutal or the most startling aspect of brutalism was how the post-conciliar Catholic Church embraced the style. I ask myself when I see this architecture and I see the Catholic, the, the, the men in, in positions of power who accept this, this architecture, I can only say the words of St. Paul. Who has bewitched you, foolish Galatians? <laughs> or foolish architectures. We'll be back. Stick around. Don't go anywhere. Jesus 911. This is the program where Christ is Lord, Christ is King, and Our Lady is a Queen Mother, and we are at the service of King Jesus and Queen Mary. I just want to finish off on ugly church architecture like the Los Angeles Archdiocese Cathedral, Case in Point Exhibit A. What the modernists in the church have done, they've, they've basically, it's called architectural, architecture brutalism. That's what it's called. They've gotten rid of the Victorian Gothic church buildings, the beautiful European architecture, and uh, they've made the churches in modern times, especially in the United States, in the West Coast, these urban planners have poured concrete worship spaces and they've replaced some of the beautiful Victorian Gothic Renaissance church buildings. So many members of these congregations voted with their feet, leaving such abominations in droves while others remained in these new alien spaces and have never felt comfortable there. But no idea is too bad to return. Um, unfortunately, this, uh, this disgusting style of architecture seems to be making a comeback. They say that trends are circular and what's old becomes new again. Now, this is true for fashion, music, and art. But in the case of architecture, there's no architectural style that exemplifies this principle better than architectural brutalism. Because from the mid-20th century, this style rose in popularity before reaching its peak in its mid-70s when it came crashing down as a model of bad taste. But that's all changing now. There seems to be a renewed interest in ugly art and appreciation for this once derided architectural style. The the increasingly totalitarian woke society needs an architectural style that expresses its repressive ugliness and class struggle philosophy and architectural brutalism might well be the choice. And exhibit A would be the Cathedral of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Talk about technology or technology devices. It's not just how we use them that's the problem. It's... Uh, there may be more to it than meets the eye. I'm looking at a picture of a bunch of young adults. They're not even talking to each other. There's uh, seven young adults. Every single one of them is texting. Nobody's talking to each other. This is common. 
these screens, these apps, and social media platforms are designed to be addictive by the people that make them. But we have more power to contract, contract these forces than we think. Over the past couple of years, there's been an, an increasing stream of ex-tech employees and executives warning the general public that companies like Apple, Facebook, and Google are focused on making certain platform devices as addictive as possible. The reason is that the more addictive a platform or device is, the more it creates profits related to advertising and even direct purchasing. For a long time, there's been an adage related to negative outcomes with technology, which goes like this, quote, technology isn't the problem, it's how we use it, close quote. And while not all devices and platforms are created to be addictive, and how we, each one, how, we each, how we use each one is a significant issue. The reality is, is that tech companies spend billions of dollars every year, including working with psychologists and other social emotional experts in the field to create products that may be the most addictive commodity we've ever known. This is by design. Key processes... <clears throat> create addiction there are let me give you three of them there are three key processes that create addiction tech companies are using addictive strategies that mimic mechanisms similar to painkillers which is not promising given we're currently in the midst of an opioid epidemic an example tech companies routinely create what are called painkiller apps that focused on three key processes designed to manipulate our behavior in an addictive way. Here's the first one. You have a repeated trigger. This is used to direct our attention to something. This trigger might be a ding on the phone or a reminder that pops up on a particular app or platform. The second, the trigger is linked to a core motivation that we all have such as fear of missing out on some information or feeling pressure. So when our phone dings, we're motivated to respond instantly in seeking out pleasure and avoiding pain. Third, an action follows that is both simple and enjoyable and or reassuring. This might be clicking on a like button or sending a quick text. In the tech developer world, as well as the addictive world, simple actions that bridge to larger sustained behaviors are a sure way to get someone hooked. It's why many smokers would say that even before lighting up a cigarette, it's the small habits like opening and preparing a cigarette that are reinforcing. This is why our devices and social media are particularly addictive. They're designed to be this way. Both use simple triggers that that prey on core emotions such as fear, loneliness, and desire for immediate gratification. They are instantly accessible, often minimize vulnerabilities and undesired experiences. We don't have to look to look at or talk directly with people and reward those who use them the most, such as through increased Facebook friends or online ratings. All the while, through the use of AI tech developers, tech developers are learning more and more about unique aspects of, of, of each of us and what drives and motivates us further. So with this information, personalized messages 
and advertisements are deliberately are delivered to us continuously, further fueling our need for this t- particular type of drug. And all of it leads to one uncritical, unavoidable truth. It's not just how we're using the tech device itself that's the problem. It's the tech device itself. Now, to be clear, I'm not accusing all tech companies or platforms as being evil or unhealthy any more than I'm accusing all alcohol or junk food as being maladaptive and indulgent. Rather, what I'm saying is that when a commodity like a mobile device or an app is created to primarily benefit the companies behind it at the expense of the user, we have to come to terms with the resulting situation. The reason greed is a vice is not because money is inherently evil. It's because the way that money is being used is creating an inequitable situation. This is where we are at today with our tech devices. But despite the difficult circumstances, the good news is that we as people and parents have more power to counteract these forces than we think, taking into account a few considerations. We need to educate ourselves. It's critical that we educate ourselves and our children to understand the mechanisms that are being used here and create a healthy degree of caution when it comes to using these devices and platforms. No matter how good our intentions are, factors and prey on our core desires, factors that prey on our core desires and subconscious selves need to be represented as the true threat they are. We need to set clear boundaries. It's important we set clear boundaries on how we use tech and not deviate from this. An example would be an important boundary is not allowing a child and really all of us to have devices in their bedrooms, especially at night. Not only has this particular behavior been linked to a a number of negative outcomes, but it also serves as a precursor to addiction as people are never provoked or never provided the separation for their devices and platforms that are necessary for healthy usage. We need to protect our youth. Studies have shown that teens who started drinking by the age of 14 are over seven times more likely to develop alcohol abuse dependence than those who wait until they are 21. We need to heed this message when it comes to tech usage. Every year, youth are not using social media or have access to personal devices decreases the likelihood they will become less prone to addictive forces preying on their immature neurology. The hope for all of us is that we take advantage of leaving platforms and devices in their place through the lifestyle we cultivate, whether it's an automatic message on our phones indicating to all of us that we're responding in a limited nature to text or whether we make Saturdays our social media free days, we can develop habits and practices that help keep the addictive risk at a minimum while remaining vigilant about the evil forces at play. Now, think about this as Catholics. Technology has distracted many Catholics from prayer and from being obedient to the Ten Commandments and the gospel of Jesus Christ. The cardinal virtue of temperance is not even a vocabulary word in our current generation. I don't know. There seems to be no moderation when it comes to the use of technology and the use of cell phones on the Internet. Who's teaching the faith to our children? Where are the parents who should be fighting for the sanctity of life and freedom to worship Almighty God and serve Holy Mother Church? Parents are just as much enslaved to the Internet and cell phones just as much as children are today. Proof is in the statistics and the fall of morality in our country. What do I mean by this? 
Let me point out just a few. Let me just let me point out just a few to make my point. Or let me point out a few things to make my point. Number one, 40 million Americans regularly visit pornography sites, and that number is growing. Number two, 25 percent of search engines requests are pornography related. Number three, 116,000 daily internet searches are child pornography. Number four, on average. The child first encounters internet pornography at age 11. Number five, 20% of men and 13% of women admit to looking at pornography at work. Number six, in 2002, a survey of 350 members of the Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers, 56% said that obsessive interest in pornography sites was a major factor leading to marital breakups. I would say that it is a fair to say that this that this percentile would be higher today since it is more readily available on smartphones due to technological advancement. And number seven, priests have reported that there's a higher rate of adultery due to social networking and cell phone applications that make it easy for men to fornicate or commit adultery. Okay. Well, we'll we'll move on to the next topic. You're going to be listening to a video of Steve Harvey. He's a black American comedian and entertainer. And the way he introduces Jesus Christ of Nazareth, boy, oh boy, I wish all entertainers and comedians would be this reverend and Christ-centered. We'll be right back. Stick around. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-526. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. Now, I'm not a big fan of comedy shows. I don't go to comedy shows. I don't go to see stand-up comics. Oh, by the way, it does give me a a chance to mention that we are going to have a little comedy festival here in Phoenix, Arizona. In Mesa, Arizona, St. Philip Neri Comedy Festival is going to be next Saturday. There's going to be Catholic stand-up comedians, improv, stand-ups, vendors, and fun for the whole family. It's going to be at the Vertuccio Farms, Vertuccio Farms, Mesa, Arizona. All ages are welcome. It's going to be a family event. CatholicComedy.com, CatholicComedy.com. It's going to be from 1 p.m. to 8 p.m. I hope to see you there. Now, uh, when it comes to secular comedians, I, I don't pay attention to most of them because most of them are just profane and vulgar. But there's one comedian that at least he hit the nail on the head in this one. I, I don't watch him, so I can tell you about his other shticks, but I can tell you that this was one of the best things he's ever done. His name's Steve Harvey. He's a black American comedian and entertainer. And here's what he says. If I had the pleasure to introduce Jesus Christ, this is how I would do it. Mr. Engineer, can you play the clip? If I had the pleasure of bringing out Christ, this is just how I would do it. It ain't got to be the way you do it. You might not think it's just right, but this is how I would do it. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to introduce a man who needs no introduction. His credits are too long to list. He has done the impossible time after time. He hails out of a manger in Bethlehem, Jerusalem, by way of heaven. His mother 
is still headlining in the Catholic Church today. His daddy is the author of a book that has been on the bestseller list since the beginning of time. He holds the record for the world's greatest fish fry. He fed 5,000 hungry souls with two fish, five loaves of bread. He can walk on water, turn water into wine. No special effects, no camera tricks. He has a headshot on every church fan across the country. Even before the kings of comedy, he was hailed the king of all kings, ruler of the universe, alpha and omega, beginning and the end, the bright and the morning star. Some say he's the Rose of Sharon, and some say he's the Prince of Peace. Get up on your feet. Put your hands together and show your love for the second coming of the one and only. Wow. <laughs> wow. Good for him. God has been good. You just, you just listened to Steve Harvey's uh, Black American Comedian and Entertainer, and that was a, a little performance that he gave. It was called, If I Had the Pleasure to Introduce Jesus Christ, This Is How I Would Do It. Guess what? Everything he said was spot on. He, he, here's what he said. Let me, let me show, you the, show with you the highlights. He said, Ladies and gentlemen, it's my honor and pleasure to introduce a man who needs no introduction. Isn't that the truth? That's the God-man. That's who he's talking about. Jesus Christ, the God-man. A man who needs no introduction. Look what Steve Harvey said. His credits are too long to list. That's, that's absolutely true. That's what John 21, 25 says. If we were to write everything that Jesus Christ said and did, it wouldn't fit in all the libraries of the world. Steve Harvey says, He has done the impossible time after time. Exactly. 36 miracles, 27 exorcists, rising from the dead. Uh, yeah, Jesus Christ, uh, for God, nothing is impossible. Steve Harvey said, he hails out of a manger from Bethlehem, Israel by way of heaven. So Steve Harvey's making the connection that he came from heaven, came from heaven to Bethlehem in the incarnation. Steve Harvey said, his mother is still headlining in the Catholic church today. That was a cool line. He realized that the Protestants don't talk much about Mary, but uh, his mother is still headlining in the Catholic Church. In other, in other words, there's still true devotion to Mary in the Catholic Church. Then he said, Steve Harvey said, his daddy is the author of a book that has been the that has been on the bestseller list since the beginning of time. So he's talking about God the Father, the source of everything, who gave us his word. 
Steve Harvey said he holds the record for the world's greatest fish fry. He, he fed 5,000 hungry souls with two fish and five loaves of bread. I thought that was a, a pretty good line. He says he can walk on water and turn water into wine. No special effects, no camera tricks. He has a headshot on every church sanctuary around the country. And he said, uh, even before the kings of comedy, he was hailed the king of all kings, ruler of the universe, Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end. He's the bright and morning star. So these are all biblical titles found in the New Testament. He is the Rose of Sharon, and some say he's the Prince of Peace. That's from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Then he says, get up on your feet and put your hands together and show your love for the second coming of the one and only Jesus Christ, the King. Now, when Christ comes back, I don't know if we'll all be getting on our feet. I think we're all going to fall on our face. That's going to be the first reaction. At the second coming of Christ, all mankind, they're gonna fall, we're going to fall on our face. We will get up on our feet once he allows us to do so. Once he says, stand up, and he reaches out to us. We'll get up slowly and, uh, and timidly and thank him for his mercy and for our salvation, for those of us that are saved. Well, I think getting to know Jesus Christ is life's greatest pursuit. Jesus Christ is the fil- fulfillment of all my desires. I hope he's the fulfillment of all your desires. Pope Benedict XVI once said, if we let Christ into our lives, we lose nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing. You know where Catholic evangelization starts from? It starts with Jesus. It's empowered by Jesus. And it's going to end with Jesus in heaven. The more we know about Jesus, the more we pray to Jesus, the more we will know Jesus. And the more we will want to, to, the, the more we're going to want to share with Jesus And the more we're going to want to share Jesus with those around us. Now, I'm a nobody who wants to tell anybody that there's somebody named Jesus that could save anybody. That somebody's called Jesus. The name of Jesus is the most perfect prayer. The name of Jesus is like honey on my lips. The name of Jesus is my melody at midnight. The name of Jesus is that hymn in my heart. The name of Jesus is that sweet, soothing song in the storm of life. Jesus is our warrior king and servant friend. Oh yeah, when I was young, my my mom and dad's garage was filled with, with posters of these macho men. Oh yeah, when I was young, I had posters all over my mom and dad's garage of Bruce Lee, John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, Rocky Marciano, Roberta Duran, Chuck Norris. Well, guess what? Not anymore. You won't see that in my garage anymore. Step aside, fellas. Step aside. I got a man crush on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the perfect lover, John chapter 1, verse 29, and the perfect fighter, Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. He's called the Lion of Judah. And we know that lions are the kings of the jungle. Don't let the secular culture fool us Catholics. We got to realize that King Jesus Christ is not some hippie. He's, uh, he's not some hippie Mr. Rogers that our culture makes him out to be. He's the king of kings. He reigns. He rules. He flips over tables in the temple. He scorns the den of vipers. He rebukes the synagogue of Satan. This is the Jesus I know and worship. This is the Jesus of sacred scripture. This is the Jesus that will lead us out of this mess one day. Absolutely. And rather, and rather than witnessing to Christ in our Catholic faith, Many Catholics have seemingly entered a witness protection program. They say nothing. They're missing in action. 
Catholic evangelization is a mission to help people fall in love with God, save souls, and slay error. Evangelization is a call to arms. There's no finer time to be a faithful Catholic. God himself called each one of us to live in this time and place to contribute to the renewal of society and the church and to vanquish the enemies of Western civilization primarily through their conversion to Christ and in the midst of this task to become as holy as possible. That's the mission. And guess what? Take a look at a picture. Take a look at pic, uh, take a look at a picture in your house or a statue or an image of Jesus Christ of Nazareth and you're going to have to ask yourself this question. We all have to answer this question before we die. Is he the son of God or is he a liar? I hope you get it right. There's no do-overs or participation trophies for just trying. I know what I said 40 years ago. He's the son of God. He's my Lord, he's my savior, he's my king. And there's no turning back. There's no retreat, no surrender. Guess what? As Catholics, there is nobody like Jesus Christ. Here is one verse that shows the uniqueness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 17, verse 8. This verse captures the totality of the uniqueness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is, quote, Matthew 17, 8. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Close quote. That's right. There's nobody like Jesus. He's the only one that was ever pre-announced. No founder of any major religion is essential to that religion like Jesus is. And Jesus Christ, his miracles authenticate his message. And his resurrection is the nail in the coffin that he is the God, he is the son of God. That's a wrap. Family, we'll be back tomorrow. Same Christ time, same Christ channel. Thank you for tuning in. Remember, live in a state of grace. Don't live in a state of mortal sin. Become holy or die trying. Pray your rosary every day. Go to confession. It's Lent. Remember, life is like a credit card. You can swipe it, but at the end, someone has to pay that bill. Who paid that bill? Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus. Deo gracias. See you next time. God bless you. Keep the faith.